Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, hello, wherever and whenever you are, and welcome to Stories of Your and Yours. My name is Sean Ennis, and today you'll hear one story from a different time and one story from a different place, and both of them will introduce you to different characters. Now, before we get started with those, let's start off with an Apple Podcast review. Great Stories with a Brilliant Reading Voice by Tobias F87. Okay, so this is Ace, really. Sean has got a tremendous podcast voice, and it's perfectly suited for the storytelling. If I was American, that's how I'd try and sound. He picks great stories, too. I consume a lot of podcasts, and not many can make my regular rotation. This one has. Thank you very much to Paul from the Lie Hard with a Vengeance podcast for that review on the Great Britain Apple Podcast client. And if you've never heard Lie Hard with a Vengeance, I very highly recommend it. The show is smart, it is hilarious, and not to mention, it is safe for all audiences. Speaking of podcast hosts, today I've got three stories for you, one of which comes from one of my favorite podcast hosts. Well, the first story, entitled Buried, comes from K.S. Anglesey, who brought us a couple of stories last season on the same episode as Charles Dickens's Signal Man. Make sure you go back to that episode to hear those stories and to get some background on K.S. Anglesey. And also make sure you go to ksanglesey.com, that's A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y, and sign up for her newsletter. And you can follow K.S. Anglesey on Facebook and Twitter, at K.S. Anglesey. I'll have links to all this in the show notes as well. This will be the first time that Buried has been made available publicly. The same goes for our second story, Jack of the Lantern, by Moxie Labouche of the excellent Your Brain on Facts podcast. Now, I've told you about Moxie's show before, and it remains one of my favorite shows. And of course, in addition to Your Brain on Facts, you can find Moxie on Spot the Lie, which is a Patreon-exclusive trivia show hosted by Moxie, Ryan from Conspiracy Theoryology, Eric from Fan Theory World, and myself. Jack of the Lantern, as you may have guessed from the title, is an origin story of sorts, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. Now, our third story today is a little bit older than the first two. It's a story that's set in Japan, and it's called Yuki Ona, written by Lafcadio Hearn. Lafcadio Hearn might have the most interesting story of any author I've featured to this point, and that's really saying something. With that being the case, I'm going to go a little bit deeper on his background than I usually do with other authors. But even with that being said, we're really just scratching the surface here. So, Lafcadio Hearn was born in 1850 in Greece to a Greek mother and an Irish father. His father was working as a surgeon in the British Army at the time. His father brought both Lafcadio and his mother back to Dublin with him, but not long after, while Hearn's father was deployed, his mother left Lafcadio in his father's aunt's custody, leaving Ireland to go back home to Greece with a Greek man. Now that lasted for a while, but then within the same year, his father remarried and his aunt's family went bankrupt, meaning he could no longer stay with her. So at this point, Lafcadio Hearn was 17 years old and basically living on the streets of London. This lasted for two more years, until a relative of his father's, concerned about the family's reputation, gave Lafcadio a one-way ticket to the United States and instructions to go to Cincinnati to find a relative of the family. Lafcadio made it to Cincinnati, but in what should not come as a surprise at this point, his relatives there gave him a few bucks and said, good luck. So, Lafcadio was on the streets once again. Now, while living on the streets of Cincinnati, he met Henry Watkin, a local printer. Watkin allowed Hearn to sleep on the newspapers in his shop, but also saw potential in him and allowed him to borrow several books. In 1872, three years after his arrival in the States, Hearn was able to obtain a position as a writer with the Cincinnati Daily Inquirer. 
He was very successful in that position, writing sensationalized accounts of crimes in the city in addition to some gothic horror stories. Hearn was very familiar with the underbelly of the city and how life was on the poor side of town, as you may have guessed, and he wrote stories reflecting his experiences living on the streets. In June of 1874, Hearn married a black woman named Maddie Foley, which resulted in a scandal that ended up getting him fired from the Inquirer. This being 1874, interracial marriage was banned in the state of Ohio. So this began his disenchantment with the city and the state, and three years later, when he and Maddie divorced, he moved to New Orleans. It was here where Hearn would make a bigger name for himself. Now, New Orleans at the time was seen as a somewhat set-apart area from mainstream American culture, but not in a positive way. But Lafcadio Hearn began writing about New Orleans, and his writings about the city would help to bring to light the unique culture of it. He wrote about Louisiana voodoo, its Creole population, and distinctive cuisine, and other aspects of New Orleans that are more well-known now than they were then. Hearn spent about a decade in New Orleans before being sent to the West Indies on assignment from Harper's Magazine. He wrote for Harper's for two years from the West Indies, and also wrote two books during that time. In 1890, Hearn went to Japan on commission from a newspaper, but the commission was terminated shortly after he arrived. Despite this, Hearn remained in Japan, where he became a citizen and adopted the name Koizumi Yakumo. He became a teacher, he married the daughter of a samurai family, and continued to write. His writings from Japan in the late 19th century had a large influence on Western culture, as much of the Western world was not familiar with Japanese culture and Eastern culture in general. Now, as I said before, this is a surface-level background, and there's more information that I could go into here about Lafcadio Hearn or Koizumi Yakumo, but this bio is getting a little bit long already, and you get the main idea. Hearn is still well-known in the area of Japan where he lived, and he's highly revered in New Orleans as well. Hearn died in 1904 at just 54 years old. The story that we'll hear today, Yuki Ona, was first published in a collection entitled Kwaidan, Stories and Studies of Strange Things. This collection features ghost stories and a non-fiction study about insects. So those two things obviously go together. Hearn said that most of the stories in the book were translated from old Japanese texts, but he also said that Yuki Ona had never been recorded before his collection was published. It was a story that was told to him by a farmer in Musashi province. So from Greece to Ireland to England to Cincinnati to New Orleans and Japan, Lafcadio Hearn packed a lot of living into his 54 years and received a lot of acclaim for his work both during and after his life, though his immersion into different cultures was not always well received by the white majority. So, now that you know about Lafcadio Hearn and his stories, along with today's two original tales, let's get right into today's presentation. Buried by K.S. Anglesey. Oh, this is a new one. Patricia strained her eyes, searching for a hint of light, for any visual information. Her nose announced wet dirt. Her body could move just to inform her she was encased in a wooden box. It was too short. Her knees were bent and pressed against the top of the box. Damn clever, too. She pressed her arms against the sides of the box, kicked and punched at the top. It had to be buried. She could burn the wood, but the limited oxygen would suffocate her before she could regenerate, even if she could achieve a hot enough burn to transform. Stay calm. Her insides twisted and boiled. She had found her way through plenty of scrapes. Damn the enlightenment, anyways. These evolving societies congratulated themselves for moving on from the silliness of burnings and witch hunts, but still reacted in fear and insanity when they encountered the unfamiliar. Her anger was not helping her. 
The faster she used up the oxygen, the sooner she'd fall into blind panic and oblivion. What happens when I can't regenerate? The afterlife theories of humans varied. They most feared a realm of eternal fire. Such an eternity would be a relief. She woke with a start and swallowed hard against the bile in her throat. If only they had given her a few more inches. Though the dark was constant, her mind invented spinning lights for her eyes to see. The stench of the damp soil and the ache of her body were real enough. Doing her best to slow her breathing and her heart rate, she grasped the skirt of her dress and rolled the smooth fabric with her fingers. Madame Gathena was a fine seamstress, a fine woman. For a moment she could smell the plump woman's perfume and feel the tenderness of her hands. "'The problem with most tailors,' she had told Patricia while taking her measurements, "'is that they only measure with numbers. To make clothing which graces the body, a true seamstress must memorize every curve.' "'What?' Her fingers encountered something that was not fabric. It was hard. A cylinder. The dog whistle. She had slipped it into the neat little pocket. Madame Gathena had insisted a true lady had a right to carry trinkets such as a man did. It likely would do her no good, but it was a distraction. She tugged and twisted at the dress, squirming as much as she could, stopping now and then to cool the seething fear that burned the edges of her mind. When her hand slipped into her pocket and her fingers wrapped around the metal whistle, she reveled in the small victory. It was a thin hope, but a hope nonetheless. Frustration returned in burning waves as she worked to free the whistle. The more she wiggled and tugged, the more stuck her hand became. This tiny hope mocked her. It was in her hand, yet out of her reach. Every cell in her arm cried out at once. Then the tearing fabric exploded against the silence of the buried coffin. Her hand was free. The effort had cost her. Her mind swam. She had little time left. She blinked, though it made no difference. Her arm tingled and shook as she brought the whistle to her lips. The feel of it was wrong. It was upside down. She inched her fingers down the whistle. A shiver worked its way along her body as she turned it. It slipped from her shaky grip, plopped to her chest, and rolled into her armpit. With her opposite hand, she fished for it. When her fingers found the whistle, she felt it up and down for the top end. Gripping it correctly, she lifted it again to her lips. She blew and blew. Deafening silence lingered. How deep am I buried? How far can the unhearable sound travel? Rage exploded in her head and chest. How have I been reduced to this? She flailed. Her hands, her feet, her knees... Her head thudded against the wood. When she came to herself, every inch of her throbbed. Her head thrummed with every beat of her heart. She'd lost the whistle. She closed her eyes and imagined she was back at the very beginning, nestled under her father's warm feathers, his breathing a rhythmic swoosh, swoosh, swoosh. She opened her eyes and listened, gritting her teeth as though it would improve her hearing. Could it be her imagination? Each swoosh was louder than the last. Another bark preceded a whine. Another internal explosion set her pounding, and this time the blows produced a hollow knock, a lifting of a corner, a trickle of dirt, a sliver of light, and a trace of fresh air. A bark, a pause, a whimper, followed by more swooshing and scratching. Patricia enjoyed the fresh air. It renewed her, invigorated her. The scratching stopped. There was another bark. She beat up against the top of the box with all her renewed vigor. More dirt rained around the edges. More sweet air fed her lungs. Patricia fought against the wood and nails and dirt. The grave was not as deep as she had expected. The black wolf dog watched her with yellow eyes. Are we guarded? The wolf dog licked his chops. Good boy. Patricia had never had a familiar. She studied the surrounding wood. Where's your master? 
The wolf dog growled, rolling his lips. You're not a familiar, are you? He barked and sneezed. Well, then, perhaps I can be of service to you, in a manner befitting your service to me. The wolf dog's tongue lolled out of the side of his mouth, and he sat upon a pile of dirt. Can you help him? The parlor of Madame Gathena's private residence had none of the shine and fluff of the brothel. I've never counted an alchemist's curse, dearie. I think your talents are more suited to the task. I've tried. It's unnatural. It's a combination of forces I've never encountered before. Madame Gathena stroked the wolf dog's fur. She tilted his head one way and then the other. Transfiguration is no easy spell to master, and I suspect... She gathered her emerald green skirts and sat on a wooden chair near the wood stove. We need a knowledge of alchemy to understand this variation. She stuffed some fresh tobacco into her pipe, lit it, and puffed. I've known but one alchemist. He oddly qualifies. But the same ideas apply. It makes no sense turning a man into a beast. Transforming a man into a dog is a great improvement by my measure. You'd have no business if it weren't for men. Were it not for men, I could have any business I like, rather than being limited to those they deem appropriate. Patricia watched Madame Gathena blow a smoke ring. The wolf dog lay down at her feet. I'd be dead if it wasn't for him. Nonsense! Madame Gathena waved her hand, dispersing the smoke. Patricia shivered. No, it's not. For a moment they stared at each other. Madame Gathena lowered her pipe and hung her head. If I'd have known... He's a sly one. Dangerous. The wolf dog sat up, laid his head on Patricia's knee, and whined. How do you think he knew about you? The alchemist, I mean, Madame Gathena asked. I don't think he did. Patricia inhaled until every centimeter of her lung space filled. Let's just say his potion would have killed you. Madame Gathena shook her head. Old mythology and modern garb. We'd all be better off with the likes of that one dead. She leaned over to study the dog once more. And what manner of man are you that he trapped you like this? How'd you buy your life? You gave up our secrets, I bet. It doesn't matter. The temperature in their room dropped. It matters to me. Madame Gathena looked every bit the witch. Please, Nancy, I promised. Patricia's voice was tender and pleading. I can make no guarantee, but maybe with a lot of us, and you. You know what active witchcraft does to me, and you best hope he's everything you think he is. Only an expert tracker could have seen the trail they left. With bare feet they tread in the quiet of night to the ceremonial cave. The ancient paintings danced in the glare of Patricia's fire. Incense smoked. Potions simmered. Chants droned. Charms buffeted the wolf-dog. It's been a long night, and we'll get darker, dears. Drink. Madame Gathena passed a goblet of strength potion. With each girl's sip, Patricia weakened. The wolf-dog whined. He took a step toward her, paused, and retreated from the flame. Patricia tilted her head in his direction. She did hope he was everything she thought he was. More than that would even be better. Heat radiated from the cave walls. Sunlight teased her from the mouth of the cave. All around her, snores, moans, and heavy breathing told of the long night they had spent expending every talent. Patricia pressed up on her elbows. He's left, dearie. Still a dog. We are vulnerable. I must get to the sunlight. It'll be a bit before the potion kicks in. Patricia dropped back against the floor. She felt for the dog whistle. Well, well, look what we have here. I, I'd say you've gone and tired yourselves out. The alchemist bent down to shine his candle on the nearest girl. Of course, of course, I should have guessed it. No interest in my cures. Yes, you'd be loyal to your own kind. He pushed his hand down into his jacket pocket. Lucky for me, I keep plenty of this around. Step away from her. 
Patricia drew on every ounce that remained of her strength to sit up. The alchemist strained to see the face attached to the voice. I'll make you pay for any hair you put out of place. His eyes widened and his eyebrows climbed toward his hairline. Surprised? You failed to kill me, alchemist. No matter. I won't fail this time. He withdrew the cork from the flask. After I've emptied this, I'll set fire to the lot of you. Put the cork back in, Akzib. The alchemist, Akzib, spun to face the new voice. Heber! How— The dark-skinned Heber snatched the flask and tossed it over his shoulder. The green potion ran out into the dry dirt. They've bewitched you, Akzib said. That may be the first time I've heard truth exit your foul mouth. Akzib reached his far hand around his back. Back pocket, Patricia said. Heber's fists landed hard, one to the stomach and one to the head. Akzib crumpled. Help me into the sunlight, please. Heber meandered the maze of sleeping witch girls. He hoisted her with little effort. The sun's energy soaked into her skin. Heber sat upon a large, flat rock. He returned to the cave and dropped the limp form of Akzib atop his empty flask. Patricia peeled off her dress. Heber's eyes cast to the ground. It speeds the process, she said. You're not a witch. No. He turned his back to her and stood like a sentry over Akzib. Madame Gathena said you left the cave as a wolf dog. It is true. Akzib stirred. He moved his head and moaned. Heber squatted. Wake, so I can look you in the eyes as I kill you. Akzib laughed. Kill me and you shall never find a cure. Open your eyes and see me. I see a man who has been transformed from a man into a dog and back into a man, one who will continue to do this until he is cured or until he dies. No witch's brew can free you. And why, Patricia said as she sauntered to Heber's side, is that? No witch has ever achieved permanent transformation, antiquated methods of a long-dead religion. Then perhaps it's time I learned alchemy. The sound that erupted from Oxib's throat rang with disdain and glee. He sat up. You? Waggling the empty flask at her, he said, I had you at my mercy with a simple splash potion. Without Heber... Heber, my dear boy, do your eternal soul a favor and free the earth of this abomination. I'd rather a half-life with an abomination than a full life with you. Akzib rubbed his hands along his pant legs. He licked his lips. There was a flash. Akzib lunged at Heber, plunging the dagger into Heber's side. Patricia pounced. Two hands on Akzib's neck and his hair ignited. Heber shoved the human torch. Akzib dropped and rolled in the dirt, but the flames spread. He screamed and gurgled and writhed. Heber wrenched the dagger from his side. With an expert hand, he hurled it. The blade crunched through Akzib's sternum. Akzib wheezed, twitched, and died. Collapsing, Heber held his side. Blood trickled from his mouth. Patricia dropped her chin to her chest and covered her eyes with her hands. Do not cry on my behalf, lady. It is a fate I have long awaited. You'll have much longer to wait, dear. Madame Gathena staggered from the cave. Patricia pressed moist hands over Heber's wound. He flinched and exhaled. The wound fizzed and knitted itself. It's the least I could do. I fear the alchemist told the truth, dearie. Madame Gathena leaned against the tree. I will find a cure. If I must fly around this world or travel to another, I will find one.
Jack of the Lantern by Moxie Labouche. Not a soul liked Jack. There's one in every village. A man no one likes, and with good reason. Jack did not have one friend in the houses or surrounding farms. He probably didn't have a friend in the whole of the county. He came by their negative esteem honestly. Jack liked a pint, and he was a devil for the drink. Erstwhile a decent farrier and smith, Jack was now an exceptional drunk. Replete though he was, he never had a cent to give anyone, except the publican, and only if his beer had no foam. Those cents knew no honest path to his pocket. Half the day steaming drunk, Jack was still a crafty bastard. He could talk a nun out of her habit in the middle of the square, and on a good day he could con a priest into marrying her on the spot. Items and animals that went missing from porch or pen were said to have gone to Jack rather than gone missing. This clear prince among men found his name on the sneer of everyone in the village. His legend needed no help, but even still the tales of his travesties began to slide that way. A traveler sitting alone to the side of the pub listened intently. This sounds like quite the fellow, the traveler said only to himself. His is an acquaintance I shall have to make. Three men at the nearest table were happy to tell the traveler where to find Jack. The traveler was physically sound, with none of the roughness of a life made in the field or on the sea. He carried himself with a certain bearing, and his clothes were nicer than anything that could be purchased for many miles. The village men hoped he was a tax collector, or a solicitor with bad news. Jack sat at a table at the back of the pub. It was not especially his table, but no one else would sit with him for fear of being the latest victim of his brazen greed. The traveler approached, and after waiting in vain for an invitation or even acknowledgement, sat down across from Jack. Are you the man about whom I've heard such entertaining stories? Jack appraised the traveler, failing to be subtle about it. A fancy man in a simple village was about the easiest mark there was. Aye, but let him be wrong over there. See us to a little more lubrication, and I'll tell you the tales the likes of which you've never heard before nor since. A landlord the traveler said, raising an elegant hand. Two bitters. Four, Jack shot in. I don't plan to drink two. I don't plan for you to either, the traveler chuffed. <laughs> Four bitters. The traveler settled back down into his seat. Your reputation was scarcely hard fought, was it? Jack shrugged one shoulder. The men say what they will. The publican brought four pints of dark amber beer and abandoned them on the table, tray and all retreating from his least favorite customer and this peculiar stranger. Jack drank the first pint as if it might otherwise escape from him. The traveler sipped his beer and waited. Jack was halfway through the next pint before he announced, "'Your old Nick, the devil himself. How did you reason it so quickly? Only the devil would uh, pay willingly for my drinks. On that score, you better pay the landlord.' "'Excuse me?' "'You ordered the pints? You should be the one to pay,' Jack stated matter-of-factly. I am the star of the morning, and the father of lies. What makes you think I wouldn't walk out on a bar tab? Jack waved his objection away. That's beneath you. It's not evil. It's barely even naughty. What are you, a leprechaun? That you go around tricking one man at a time? No. Robbing a landlord of four points of bitter isn't the devil's work. The devil was silent for a moment as he sipped his beer. I don't carry cash, he said quietly. Jack rolled his eyes. All the powers of evil in creation, and you can't work your way around this. The devil narrowed his eyes at Jack slightly. Look, you can change shape, can't you? The devil did not respond. So, turn yourself into a coin. I'll lend you to the landlord, and then you change back. The bitter is paid for, 
and you get to scare half the life out of someone. The devil considered this for a moment, annoyed by the soundness of the plan and the fact that the mortal man could have even put these ideas in his head. Nevertheless, he agreed with a nod. Right! Jack barked and tossed down the last of his beer. He held out a flat hand and waited. The devil, still unsure why he should go along at all, disappeared in a span of a blink, and just as quickly, a coin was on Jack's palm. He gave it a bounce and enjoyed the heavy feel. Jack stood up, poured most of the third beer down his throat, and dropped the coin in his pocket. The landlord behind the bar only shook his head in irritation as Jack walked out without paying. As his feet hit the dirt outside, Jack patted his pocket. The large coin smacked against a silver crucifix and chain, and Jack smiled. Even without the tiny sacred figure of Jesus, silver was the enemy of all things mythical or evil, including, as he had hoped, the very devil. As long as that cross lay against the coin, the devil was trapped. You'll not be taking my soul today. Fully pleased with himself, Jack sauntered staggeringly home, the coin buzzing like a hornet the entire way. Once home, Jack took the large, ornate crucifix from above his hearth and went out to the stable for a hammer and a handful of nails. He trekked a bit into the woods behind the barn and found the largest oak tree there was to be found. With nails clamped between his teeth, Jack nailed the crucifix to the trunk of the tree. All this walking and doing he could do with another pint. After satisfying himself that no amount of pulling would free the cross, Jack dropped his hammer and pulled the coin and cross from his pocket. Leaning back, he threw them both as hard as he could into the tall branches of the tree. The cross knocked from branch to branch before falling to the earth. The coin, on the other hand, turned into a very angry man who grabbed tightly to the branches. The devil abandoned the dapper guise he'd worn at the start of the night and stared with rage in his red, scaly glory. That was more clever than it was smart, the devil snarled and made to climb down. As his feet neared the lowest branches, the crucifix of silver drove him back, as if with a physical shove. Let me down, the devil roared. Swear you won't take my soul. I would drown you in a lake of fire with my own hand. Then enjoy your day out in the open air. It's a fine sunny time of year. You could do with a bit of sunshine, I'd wager. The devil stopped shaking the branches. There was a reason the devil was not known to do work in the clean, pure light of day. Say you won't take my soul. Agreed. Do I have your sworn word? The devil bared his pointed teeth. You have my sworn word that you will not go to hell. The oak tree is a witness, Jack declared, and he took up a bar to pry the crucifix loose. As soon as it fell from the bark, the devil leapt from the branches and ran into the night, his cloven feet leaving deep marks in the ground. Never was a man more pleased with his own craftiness than Jack, and never was a village more tired of hearing the same unbelievable tale over and over than Jack's. They tolerated his ways as best they could for five years until, to their relief, first unspoken and then spoken loudly, Jack died. Loose of his mortal shell, the soul of Jack rose to judgment and gave St. Peter his name. Peter looked into his book of lives, the beatific eyes going wide as they traveled down the page. With clear surprise, he flipped the page and continued reading. Oh no, he said quietly. Oh no, 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 you can't come in here. But I'm a good Christian! Jack protested. Christian, perhaps. Good, I don't think so. I defeated the devil once. All you did that night was show you are more wicked than even Lucifer. Down you go. With a wave of St. Peter's hand, Jack found himself plummeting at unbelievable speed through the sky and the very earth. He came to a stop in a great rock chamber, lit by fire and reeking of brimstone. 
In front of him, a familiar figure sat on a throne of bones. "'Where do you think you're going?' the devil asked, leaning forward in his seat. Uh, "'To hell, I suppose,' said Jack. "'I've been cast from the door to heaven for having had a bit of fun in life. So now it's the foyer for me. We can't have that. The deal was struck, remember?' The devil leaned back comfortably. "'You made me promise not to bring your soul into my kingdom. I wouldn't go back on my word. Tricks like that are beneath me, aren't they?' Jack's face fell in sorrow and confusion. "'Where am I to go, then?' "'Back to earth.' "'Back to life?' "'No,' the devil smiled. "'You are long dead.' "'What am I to do on earth with no body?' Jack asked, bereft. "'Walk, I suppose. It makes me no never mind.' Is there nothing you will do to help me? With that, the devil picked a burning coal from the cave floor and flicked it at Jack. He caught it awkwardly and tossed it from hand to hand. Even without flesh to burn, the infernal coil still felt painfully hot. There. Now you can light your way. Before Jack could reply, the devil snapped his long fingers and Jack rocketed upward. Jack found himself in the center of a long, empty road. He did not know which way to go but it was not as if he had a reason to go one way or the other. The night was unforgivingly dark. Jack scarcely saw the round bit of white on the side of the road, a turnip in the dirt, likely fallen from a cart and partially chewed by some lucky wild thing. He dropped the burning coal inside and turned the turnip so that it cast its ruddy light on the road. And then Jack began to walk. In the village of Musashi province there lived two woodcutters, Mosaku and Minokichi. At the time of which I am speaking, Mosaku was an old man, and Minokichi, his apprentice, was a lad of eighteen years. Every day they went together to a forest situated about five miles from their village. On the way to that forest there is a wide river to cross, and there is a ferry boat. Several times a bridge was built where the ferry is, but the bridge was each time carried away by a flood. No common bridge can resist the current there when the river rises. Mosaku and Minokichi were on their way home, one very cold evening, when a great snowstorm overtook them. They reached the ferry and they found that the boatman had gone away, leaving his boat on the other side of the river. It was no day for swimming, and the woodcutters took shelter in the ferryman's hut, thinking themselves lucky to find any shelter at all. There was no brazier in the hut, nor any place in which to make a fire, it was only a two-mat hut, with a single door, but no window. Mosaku and Minokichi fastened the door and lay down to rest, with their straw raincoats over them. At first, they did not feel very cold, and they thought that the storm would soon be over. The old man almost immediately fell asleep, but the boy, Minokichi, lay awake a long time, listening to the awful wind and continual slashing of the snow against the door. The river was roaring, and the hut swayed and creaked like a ship at sea. It was a terrible storm, and the air was every moment becoming colder, and Minokichi shivered under his raincoat. But at last, in spite of the cold, he too fell asleep. He was awakened by a showering of snow in his face. The door of the hut had been forced open, and by snowlight, he saw a woman in the room, a woman all in white. She was bending over Mosaku and blowing her breath upon him, and her breath was like a bright white smoke. Almost in the same moment she turned to Minokichi and stooped over him. He tried to cry out, but found that he could not utter any sound. The white woman bent down over him, lower, 
and lower until her face almost touched him, and he saw that she was very beautiful, though her eyes made him afraid. For a little time she continued to look at him, then she smiled and whispered, I intended to treat you like the other man, but I cannot help feeling some pity for you, because you are so young. You are a pretty boy, Minokichi, and I will not hurt you, but if you ever tell anybody, even your own mother, about what you have seen this night, I shall know it, and then I will kill you. Remember what I say. With these words, she turned from him and passed through the doorway. Then he found himself able to move, and he sprang up and looked out. But the woman was nowhere to be seen, and the snow was driving furiously into the hut. Minokichi closed the door and secured it by fixing several billets of wood against it. He wondered if the wind had blown it open. He thought that he might have been only dreaming and might have mistaken the gleam of snow light in the doorway for a figure of a white woman, but he could not be sure. He called to Mosaku and was frightened because the old man did not answer. He put out his hand in the dark and touched Mosaku's face and found that it was ice. Mosaku was stark and dead. By the dawn, the storm was over, and when the ferryman returned to his station a little after sunrise, he found Minokichi lying senseless beside the frozen body of Mosaku. Minokichi was promptly cared for and soon came to himself, but he remained a long time ill from the effects of the cold of that terrible night. He had been greatly frightened also by the old man's death, but he said nothing of the vision of the woman in white. As soon as he got well again, he returned to his calling, going alone every morning to the forest and coming back at nightfall with his bundles of wood, which his mother helped him to sell. One evening, in the winter of the following year, as he was on his way home, he overtook a girl who happened to be traveling by the same road. She was a tall, slim girl, very good-looking, and she answered Minokichi's greeting in a voice as pleasant to the ear as the voice of a songbird. Then he walked beside her, and they began to talk. The girl said that her name was Oyuki, and she had lately lost both of her parents, and that she was going to Yedo, where she happened to have some poor relations who might help her to find a situation as a servant. Minokichi soon felt charmed by this strange girl, and the more that he looked at her, the handsomer she appeared to be. He asked her whether she was yet betrothed, and she answered laughingly that she was free. Then in her turn she asked Minokichi whether he was married, or pledged to marry, and he told her that, although he had only a widowed mother to support, the question of an honorable daughter-in-law had not yet been considered, as he was very young. After these confidences they walked on for a long while without speaking, but, as the proverb declares, when the wish is there the eyes can say as much as the mouth. By the time they reached the village they had become very much pleased with one another, and then Minokichi asked Oyuki to rest a while at his house. After some shy hesitation she went there with him, and his mother made her welcome and prepared a warm meal for her. Oyuki behaved so nicely that Minokichi's mother took a sudden fancy to her and persuaded her to delay her journey to Yedo, and the natural end of the matter was that Yuki never went to Yedo at all. She remained in the house as an honorable daughter-in-law. Oyuki proved a very good daughter-in-law. When Minokichi's mother came to die some five years later, her last words were words of affection and praise for the wife of her son, and Oyuki bore Minokichi ten children, boys and girls, handsome children, all of them, and very fair of skin. The country folk thought that Oyuki was a wonderful person, by nature different from themselves. Most of the peasant women age early, but Oyuki, even after becoming the mother of ten children, looked as young and as fresh as the day on which she had first come into the village. One night, 
After the children had gone to sleep, Oyuki was sewing by the light of a paper lamp, and Minokichi, watching her, said, To see you sewing there with a light on your face makes me think of a strange thing that happened when I was a lad of eighteen. I saw somebody as beautiful and white as you are now. Indeed, she was very like you. Without lifting her eyes from her work, Oyuki responded, Tell me about her. Where did you see her? Then Minokichi told her about the terrible night at the ferryman's hut, and about the white woman that had stooped above him, smiling and whispering, and about the silent death of old Mosaku. And he said, Asleep or awake, that was the only time I saw a being as beautiful as you. Of course, she was not a human being, and I was afraid of her, very much afraid, but she was so white. Indeed, I have never been sure whether it was a dream that I saw, or the woman of the snow. Oyuki flung down her sewing, and arose, and bowed over Minokichi where he sat, and shrieked into his face. It was I! 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 Yuki it was, and I told you then that I would kill you if you ever said one word about it! But for those children asleep there, I would kill you this moment, and now you had better take very, very good care of them, for if they have any reason to complain of you, I will treat you as you deserve! Even as she screamed, her voice became thin, like a crying of wind. Then she melted into a bright white mist that spired to the roof beams and shuddered away through the smoke hold. Never again was she seen. today's stories? You can't trust an alchemist, sometimes you can trust the devil, and you should always obey a snow ghost. Universally applicable morals, as usual. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Stories of Your and Yours. For a full list of music and sound effect credits, please visit syypodcast.libsyn.com slash blog. Now next week, I'll be bringing you another author that I haven't featured on the show yet. Based on the title of the story, you may think you know what it's about, and you may think it's based in fantasy, but I assure you, the influence for the story called The Body Snatcher is all too real. Until then, this has been Stories of Your and Yours. I've been Sean Ennis. Thanks for listening. See you next week. If you've got a request for a short story, or if you've written your own short story that you want to submit to the show, you can do that through any of the social media channels, or you can email me at syypodcast at gmail.com. <laughs>